You've heard the headlines. Get some perspective now with Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. Good morning and a happy Thursday to you. We're going to jump right into the show with, well, is there a need to clarify the role of school school resource officers in Arizona? The lead. All right. So the school resource officers, SROs, most of us didn't have them in our schools growing up, but they're quite common today. Another thing that's quite common in schools today are students that are struggling with mental health issues. So there's a new bill making its way through the Arizona State Legislature that would require school resource officers to take training in de-escalation and mental health. Yeah, this may come as a shock to you kids out there, because we're very popular with the kids. The only time that I uh, ever saw a police officer on campus was for career day or like show and tell. Or we had like the say no to drugs assembly. Oh, yeah. Dare. Mm -hmm. Dare program. Remember that? Okay. Nowadays, it is standard operating procedure at many schools to have a permanent... Um, known almost like a faculty member who is a, uh, a a police officer, but it appears that, and I think there are, I'll grant you that they are the extreme instances of school resource officers doing a little too much, m- m- maybe treating the job differently than than what was intended. Because maybe we need to start with what do you think their role is. Great. Well, there's this new bill that is being uh, presented in our state capitol that would define what the role is, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, under uh, HB 2275, if you guys are taking notes at home, school resource officers would be to focus on building positive relationships with pupils, with, the, or, <laughs> with school staff in the community, and that they're not responsible for discipline unless the school resource officer is authorized to do so. And if this is the language that you're putting Hmm. into the bill, it begs the question, so that's not what's happening now? Right. Now, I I get back to this again, and I can acknowledge maybe that is the impression or the marching orders that some of these officers have been given. I would say most. Right. But the fact that we're having this discussion, and because there are some egregious examples Maybe we need to clarify it. All right. So we've got uh, State Representative Alma Hernandez. She's the one who is introducing this House bill. And for her, it's personal. When she was 14 years old, she was down in Tucson, and she was injured during an altercation, she says, with a school resource officer. Oh, wow. She said that... Personal uh, to her. Yeah, that uh, two older girls at her school mistook her for someone else, and they started attacking her. All right. When the officer intervened, he thought she was the aggressor and slammed her to the ground. She still has spinal damage that uh, you know wow. affects the side of her body to this day. Okay. And we've had other instances here in the valley. Um, there was an issue last year. Phoenix police officer that was uh, a school resource officer at Isaac Middle School used pepper spray to break up a fight. Yeah. And. I think these are the exceptions and not the norm. Uh, No argument. But I'm still in support of this bill. I don't think that this is a bill, you know, uh, a problem, a a solution in search of a problem. I think that this is just the next logical step because Mm -hmm. this would require mandate 
an eight-hour training from the Arizona Peace Officer Standards and, and Training Board that is right now voluntary. Not required. So you can take this eight-hour training, but it's not required. Well, e- this bill it- would also provide the money for the schools to pay for that training. Be- because I guess we have to start with an understanding or an agreement. Do you think the role of a school resource officer is to weed out crime and arrest bad guys on campus? Or is it to, um, what, what was the terminology they use here, uh, focus on building positive relationship with pupils, school staff, and the community? You, you know, like those are very different things. Are they there to be the enforcer on campus? Are they there to slap cuffs on people for starting a food fight? I'm exaggerating. You know, you know what I mean? Or are they there to uh, uh, basically provide a presence that's supposed to have some sort of a calming effect. And if so, that's very different than maybe what they would do if they were an officer outside of campus. Yeah, I don't believe that school resource officers are strictly on campus to make friends with students, staff, and the community. That's not what I want them there for uh-huh. as a parent. Like, But do you want them there not... to protect the kids or arrest the kids? I, 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 they're there to help the kids okay. and to help the, the administration. And when I say help, it's to provide assistance. Administrators are, are sometimes put in, in really difficult predicaments. And, and I know this. My sister is a principal. And some of the situations that she has found herself in with students have been quite compromising when it comes to their behaviors. Okay. And sometimes you need a little assistance. Sure. And, and so they're there to help, not to be the, you know, the, the judge, the, the trial, the lawyer and the jury or whatever that phrase is. They're there for assistance and to help them better assist mandating the training I like. I think that the more training you can get, the more learning you can have, the better off you're going to be. And I know that there are some that that are concerned, like the Arizona Police uh, Association. They're concerned that, let's say, a school resource officer is sick. It happens. And they they need to pull somebody else in for the day. And if that person doesn't have this training, are we going to leave the school without an SRO for the day? I think that that's something you can address. And I think that that's something that you can fix. I don't think that that's something that negates what they're trying to do here. But we have some examples. And again, I think the reason why this comes up is, let's acknowledge it, the extremes. Not all of them here, but we have... We have school resource officers across the country, and it to me it strikes me as what is it you're asking them to do? What is their what is their mission on campus? Because if their mission on campus is to act and tr- and treat students the same way they do quote suspects and criminals in the real world, you're going to have you're going to have some confrontations that don't turn out the way you want. We had one in in uh, Florida. Florida. Yeah. This this one was really disturbing to me. And let, let me paint the picture for you here. Um, we've got body camera footage and the video starts when this confrontation is, is already taking place. What you have is a student. I want to say he's probably he's a high schooler, right? Like yeah. 17 or so. Okay. He's in a, a pickup truck and he's trying to leave the student parking lot. You've got a school resource officer, as well as the discipline assistant at the school that are trying to prevent the student from leaving. Now, he's apparently leaving to go to an orthodontist appointment. Okay. And the school resource officer tells him that he's not old enough to leave, isn't allowed to do so. 
And the deputy says that he's truant. Now, about 16 seconds into this video, of which I'm about to play for you here, the student tries to move his truck around the deputy and around the administrator. And that's and exit where, the parking lot. And that's where things go way out of line. She said, you're not leaving until you, you get a phone, until a, parent on a the phone. parent on the phone. Y'all blocking me. Like, like if you're not I'm holding not me, then get the out of my way. You're going to get shot. You come another foot close to me. You, so, you run into me, you'll get shot. That's the, the school, school resource, resource officer, officer threatening to shoot a student for leaving the parking lot at school. Again, is that what you expect school resource officers do as no, opposed to, anybody dude, does. go ahead and leave. When you come back, we're going to deal with this in the principal's office. Right. You'll get detention or whatever I, it is. You it, see what I'm saying? As opposed to, we're going to escalate to a shooting? shooting in the parking lot for truancy? And the the student isn't an angel here. No! Okay, moving your, your truck closer to an officer. He wasn't leaving ramming it. Leaving campus, it, whether it, you're allowed to or not. You know, maybe he was leaving illegally, quote unquote. Fine. It's still not punishable by shooting. And this is one of those egregious examples that I believe is an outlier, but it serves as an example as to why I think that these... This bill is a good thing. Mm-hmm. As a parent, I think it's a good thing. Again, mandating eight-hour training for de-escalation and mental health struggles that so many students are dealing with. We we know that. And as an officer, when you're encountering a student who's going through that, if you have more tools in your toolbox to help with that situation, why wouldn't you want that? Right. Right. It seems like it would be, again, it gets back to the expectations is all I can say is what is it you want a school resource officer to do? How do you want them to act? And shouldn't they be the one, being the adult in the room, de-escalating, non-confrontational, as opposed to the other way, which is, I'm going to shoot you if you try to drive off campus. So, yeah, uh, it, it, there is something. Um Apparently, Pamela, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Apparently. Allegedly. No, it is. No, there's no alleged. Is it always it's on a the... fact. Is it like Christmas, it's always on the 14th? <laughs> yes. Or is it just like the second Friday of no. February? It's on no. one of those things? No. All right. So you can tell. But, <laughs> but there is a worry. Valentine's Day puts a lot of pressure on people. And one of the things is, hey, don't let Valentine's Day ruin your marriage. St. James and Pamela Hughes. Did you know that the divorce rate goes up around Valentine's Day? Why is that? If you are unhappy or questioning a relationship in any way, shape, or form, this weekend is a weekend that on the Facebook, on the Instagram, maybe even on the Twitter machine, you are going to see examples of what you think are good relationships Hmm. and compare it to yours and say, well, I didn't get a dozen red roses. Uh, believe me, you're not getting a divorce just because you didn't get a dozen red roses. But what happens is people reflexively look at all these other in-love couples. It may be, you know, on social media. Maybe it's at the office. You see somebody get some flowers or chocolates and they're treated better than you think you're Ouch. being treated. And, you know, it's a comparison. Keeping well, up with not, the Joneses, right? It's not just a comparison, though. Uh, a good marriage is work. It's not something that comes easy, and you both have to be invested in it. 
And I think what happens on Valentine's Day is when you have one partner, let's say a woman in this case, because that's what I can speak to, who, you know, goes, okay, we've hit some bumps in the road. And, you know, what things aren't going the way I want them to. And I see how everybody else is getting this and I'm not getting this. It, it, it tends to, to sour, you know, the way you're viewing your relationship. Sure, sure, that makes sense. But I would also offer you that if you're constantly looking around for evidence that your relationship is broken Ouch. or that it, it isn't good, you're going to find is it. Is that kind of like if you stare in the sky and look for UFOs long enough, you'll see one? If you, if you, you know, if you're looking for not the analogy I was going to yeah, go with, but, but if you're looking one. for confirmation, you'll eventually find it. If oh, you, that's we, what we find evidence for what we're looking for yeah. and everything. I, and I also think that, in, and one of the arguments here is Valentine's Day could be expensive. Yeah, uh, the cost of flowers goes up like by ten times. Like you could have bought a dozen red roses like three weeks ago. It's like five bucks. I don't know. You know. At the, down at the fries, you know, and now uh, you're going to need to take out a, a home equity loan maybe to get a dozen. Maybe you just go with six this time, right? Uh, d- dinner, you know, gifts. And, the, and, the, and there is a pressure and an expectation and people who uh, maybe are struggling in some way, shape or form financially feel a pressure to what? Go into debt, run up your credit card or whatever to prove to that person in your relationship on this one day of the year that you're really this one you're serious about. Yeah, and I think it's even more than money. It, it, it takes time to plan all of that. And when you think of, you know, if you've got children or a nope. child like I do who's yeah. 10 and not old enough to stay home by yourself okay. just yet, and it's a Friday night, you know, for Valentine's, Valentine's Day, Friday night. you've got to start planning weeks in advance to try to find a sitter or try to find somebody to, to take care of the kid while mm. you're going out it's a, it's for the a, night. It's a tough night to find and, somebody. And that, yeah, and then you've got to make dinner reservations because good luck just showing up yeah, to a restaurant. By the way, if you haven't Valentine's made your reservations, Day. now you're going to be at the Waffle so House. So it becomes, like it becomes, you know, work. Yeah. And frankly, there should be work done throughout the year and not mm. just on one day. Right, that's I a mean, solid argument. for for us uh, tomorrow, we don't have reservations tomorrow night. Okay. Uh, but I'm not cooking. I have made that clear. Okay. And I'm not cleaning the kitchen. Okay. So we're going to do like takeout somewhere. Oh, all you right. Know, whether it, I, I was it's like, like where's Uber this plan Eats. going? I'm trying yeah. to figure it out. So whether it's Uber Eats or we, you know, Chris picks something up on his way home, that's fine. I don't want to cook. I don't want to clean. Got All it. right. Deal. And then today, you know, Riley and I are, are going to make a dessert because since we're not going out to eat, we got to have a dessert at home. Oh. So we're going to make a dessert at home and probably watch a movie. Could- and you know what? That sounds so good to me right now. Can I request that some of that dessert make it into the radio station tomorrow? You can request. I can request. Uh, like, I can't like guarantee. Like heart-shaped cookies or something uh, like that? You know what? That? It might actually be heart-shaped Rice Krispie Treats. Oh, my land. Riley just learned how to make Rice Krispie Treats, and she thinks that she is like the ultimate By the way, Riley, I believe you pastry are. Pastry chef. You are. Yes. But I'm going to need to taste some of them to justify <laughs> it. So let's acknowledge that you're not going to. You're not going to be one of those people that lets Valentine's Day ruin your relationship you by trying to compare to the Joneses. So you're going to have to explain to me, this can't be a real number. This comes from, this comes from the people that, you know, look into this stuff. Okay. You, Americans, are going to spend two billion with a B, Baseline with a B, two billion with a B, 
on Valentine's Day things for your pets. Well, they love the poochie pooch. You can love your dog. You just can't love your dog. <laughs> okay? I don't understand. Do you really think your dog gets Valentine's Day? Do you think they understand it? It's an excuse. It's an excuse. Two billion dollars on pets? People love their pets. And you know what? If that makes you feel good, go for it. If you can afford it and it makes you feel good, go for it. In comparison, because I just had to look it up here. I'm like, if we're spending two million on our poochie pooches. Billion with a B. Billion. Did I say billion? Okay. Two two billion Mm -hmm. on our pets for Valentine's Day. What are we spending on our sweeties? Okay. So across the country, we expect to spend uh Twenty-seven and a half billion on Valentine's Day. So That's still ten percent we yeah. spent on our dog and our cat. And what do, you, what do you get for a fish for Valentine's Day? Pink water. Maybe some more food flakes oh that are my pink. God, or a little a little coral piece in there that's pink with all, in the shape of a heart. I can help you guys with gift ideas. If really you need it for your pets? Seriously? Did you buy a Valentine's Day gift for your pet? I mean, check check Bruce on this, right? Did, did you spend some money on your pet this Valentine's Day? You don't Day? have the guts to admit it. Yeah, you know what? You don't Own have the guts. it. I'm not mad at you. Give it us a call on the open mic line, 602-200-2733. 602-200-2733. We have the latest on this uh, Corona cruise ship, the coronavirus cruise ship, right? Including, the, it's got a bunch of Americans on board. We'll update you on that and the ethical dilemma around it coming up next. Arizona's news station, KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Get some perspective. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. You know, the the coronavirus and the uh, outbreaks, the concerns, the quarantines have acknowledged, have brought up some, some interesting conversations. Pamela, I know, I know you saw something and refers to it as an, an ethical minefield. Yeah, you know, some of these questions have kind of been bouncing around in in my mind, but this article did a much better job of putting them into perspective than I could and and verbalizing them. When you take a look at what's happening with these cruise ships, right, you've got one off the coast of Japan, which we know we have a Scottsdale doctor and her husband who are on that ship. That uh, and some folks are being able to, to come off of it right now. They're they're taking the most vulnerable. I think they they called them passengers off because they've been able to find a port that will allow them to dock. Yeah. But the folks on that ship are still going to be quarantined for the next six days, and then you have crews on that those ships. You know, some of which the uh, are, are Indian, and there were members of this this crew on the ship that have actually reached out to the Indian government. Because they're afraid they're not being kept away from sick passengers. And so this mm. this ethical well, minefield. A, you know, that that is something. And you mentioned that the other day. The, the, the staff, the crew on board this ship said they are quarantined as well, but they're still having to do their jobs to some way and be around sick passengers. And they're saying, well, how come nobody's concerned about our health? Right. You know, when you're taking a look at like the the cruising industry as a whole, um, there have been a lot of stories in the past about how they, they, you know, exploit some of their workers. And is this just another example of it? So we're talking about the ethical minefield. Think about it this way. I mean, when you're when you're talking about quarantining anybody on like a cruise ship or just 
even in general, we've had, you know, folks that have lived Americans that, that are that were in Wuhan, China, and have come back to the United States, and they've had to go through screenings, and then they've been living on different military bases for two weeks until they can be cleared to leave. The article puts it this way, quarantine is a frontal assault on freedom. It literally deprives individuals of their liberties for the sake of the larger community, raising countless difficult questions. Think about this, Bruce. Ready. How much power should authorities have over the daily lives of individuals? Oh. How much should individuals sacrifice for the sake of the community? Well, it, it seems that that, that that line is all over the road. Let me give you examples. While passengers on board this cruise ship are, I mean, I think we can acknowledge, held against their will, <laughs> not allowed to leave the ship, we're, we're confined to quarters, if you will, while other people we know who are suspected of or uh, may possibly have been exposed to the coronavirus are on the honor system of, hey, go home and uh, take it, make sure you don't go out in public. But nobody's going to stop them from doing that. Sure. OK, so there you go. How far should the state go to enforce restrictions? Let's say we get off the cruise ship. Right. And and we're not in China because that's a whole different that's ball a whole game other, there. Yeah. But I mean, think, think about here in the United States, we're going to have more cases. It's going to happen. Should people go to jail for violating a confinement to which, you know, they are forced because of no fault of their own? Think about ASU, for instance. We had a, a case of somebody who was affiliated with the ASU community. Again, still don't know who it was or what that right. affiliation meant. Uh, you know, how far should should that individual's, you know, freedoms be sacrificed for the sake of the community? Hmm. If you're going to infect a bunch of other people and make a bunch of other people sick, well, then, yeah, there are certain individual liberties that are going to be taken away from you for the greater good. But that's really uncomfortable for Americans to talk about. And that's where you get into that ethical minefield, so to speak. I think, and again, I think that's a really interesting argument because it gets into um, what is your personal responsibility Mm -hmm. to, for example, not infect others? And what is, we'll call it government's uh, responsibility to keep you from infecting others? Because if the cruise ship is the example of, quote, how it should be done, confined to quarters, wouldn't go to to the, you know, they were going to let it dock, nobody can get on, nobody can get off. Well, that's not how other people who are suspected of being exposed to the virus are being treated. So why are why are why am I being held to a completely different standard than somebody who might be on land and not on a boat? Just so you can't, you know, you can't ring my house with security guards or something. But what's happening with the cruise industry is just as a microcosm that that is interesting to take a look at a little bit deeper because let's say you're not even on that ship. Okay. But you have um what do you want to call a voyage scheduled with the Royal Caribbean. Okay. Very, very popular cruise ship, cruise line rather. They've announced that they will deny boarding to anyone who has traveled through China in the last two weeks. So you can't, if you've traveled through China on your way to get on the boat, they're not going to let you get on the boat. Which, you know what, China... It's got a huge issue, a huge problem going on. It is a public health epidemic in China. So that that may be reasonable. But if you like if you take a look at this, it was for a time 
barring any holder of a passport from China, Hong Kong, or other places, regardless of whether or not they've set foot in these locations. Hmm. A bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Well, and and I think the problem is, is it's all hindsight. Because are we going to look back? Play play this out, Pam. We'll do game theory here. Are we going to look back in six months saying, wow, you know, that that cruise ship was the right idea. (laughs) They really had it right. Uh, Because we still don't know what we don't know. Are we going to... You only know was the level of... Uh, control over a citizen was it appropriate to the threat well you only know is did it work retroactively and what have we learned from it yeah i think we're still continuing to to learn about this virus we know that the the number of confirmed cases has jumped the number of deaths has jumped yeah apparently it's because they are now like they've changed the way that they're, they're categorizing oh, symptoms and whether or not... They tried not... to change the name the other day. Well, they did change the well, name. Well, they can try. I'm still calling it the coronavirus. Right, exactly. I don't even know how to... The other one doesn't roll off the tongue. The COVID-19 or whatever it is. No, I like coronavirus. So impeachment has been over for what, a week now, right? Has Trump learned his lesson or has it emboldened him? Got some evidence out there. We'll talk about it next on Arizona's news station. Arizona's news station, KTAR News on 92.3 FM. Bruce St. James and Pamela Hughes. So we've got some uh, goings on inside the Department of Justice. You've got Congress uh, demanding that the Attorney General come and testify. There's some goings on, if you will, but there there is a root to all this. And I do think that it is it brings up an interesting dilemma, Pamela. What's that? Which is um, I think it is fair to say in literally everything he has said or done post impeachment that Trump does not feel restricted, chastened or had his hand slapped. Just the opposite. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. I think he feels emboldened that he was cleared in the Mueller investigation. Total exoneration. With the impeachment. It was perfect. And there were issues with both of those. Now, were they definitive and ended up in removal from office? No, because a lot of Republicans, I think, are concerned more about their own reelection moving forward. They've got that personal invested stake and they don't want the president tweeting about them. But what's happened just a week post-impeachment acquittal is interesting. And I think that the history books will look back on it and they'll have some pretty strong opinions on it. I I take you to a story that maybe a lot of you haven't been following. And frankly, you can get too in the weeds with it. So I'll just kind of keep it a bit high level. You have Roger Stone, who is a, a President Trump ally, who was investigated during the Mueller investigation and ha- went through a trial in New York and was found guilty. Yeah. And the federal prosecutors recommended a sentence and it was going through like the standard sentencing policy. It's what they do. Of I believe it was seven to nine years. Yeah. That was their recommended sentence. Which was on the high end, but still their recommendation. The president didn't like that. 
And the president made it known he didn't like that. I'm not concerned about anything. They ought to go back to school and learn, because I'll tell you, with the way they treated people, nobody should be treated like that. that that's the prosecutors, his federal prosecutors right. he's talking about. He was treated very badly. Roger Stone. In nine years recommended by four people that perhaps they were Mueller people. I don't know who they were, prosecutors. Dirty cops. And right? they... Uh, I don't know what happened. They all hit the road pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, they hit the road pretty quickly, I think, because, they, <laughs> yeah, they resigned because they, they feel like they have a moral and ethical obligation. Yeah. They followed the protocol and they presented a sentence which they thought was true. Well, keep so, in mind, Trump doesn't like cops. Let's get one thing straight. He does not like cops. He only likes cops that agree with him. Now, what, what has since happened is the Attorney General, William Barr, uh, got with the DOJ, Department of Justice, and they say that, you know, this 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 wasn't ran past us first, and so we're going to recommend, you know, a lesser sentence. In essence, you have the executive branch that is meddling in the judicial branch. Well, the Department of Justice is now taking its sentencing requirements from rage tweets. Basically. So the, 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 here's the dilemma. As Trump continues the purge, as they attempt to exact retribution on the enemies list, should Congress continue to try to hold him accountable or is, because we already know the outcome, it an exercise in futility and they shouldn't, quote, waste any more time on it? You know, I, I saw a headline that, you know, Democrats demand Barr's resignation and they call for investigations and hearings. And I got to admit, every time I hear about more investigations and more hearings, I go, come on, guys, enough already. Like you're, you're investigating this president to death and we're having, you know, so many hearings over things. And that, I admit, is a knee-jerk reaction because it's been happening so often. But is it happening so often because what the president is doing um, is so wrong? I, I think that we're in a difficult position right now in this country, and I don't quite know how we get out of it because I'm mad at both sides here. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the right is protecting the president for things that he's done that are wrong. And I think that a lot of times the Democrats are just trying to find any reason whatsoever to go after this president. Sometimes it's worthy. But it's a, a lot of the times it's not. Is there a damned if you do, damned if you don't here? Potentially. You know, in the sense I, of I, yeah, okay. if you don't you know, try to counter, if you don't try to balance government, we have three co-equal branches. We used are to. The, uh, agreed. Mm -hmm. And if the other two branches are too afraid of the executive branch, is that a good thing? No, I don't think it is a good thing. And that's why I think it'll be um, interesting how history looks back on this point in time um, in this country. But I wonder, where are the adults in the room? There was a period of time where the <laughs> Trump <quit>. administration <laughs> had some adults. I'm thinking yeah. of John Kelly okay. and Mattis and Tillerson mm -hmm. and, and folks who either were pushed out or left on their own accord, depending on where you get your news sources these days. And, you know, we, we've had articles and books that have been written by anonymous sources within the administration that are, yeah. you know, sounding the alarm over this, that and the other. Step into the light. Where are you people? You know, if that's truly how you feel, well, why you're no longer in the administration, you're not running for re-election. Where are you and why are you so silent right now? I don't think they're silent. I just don't think people want to hear from them. 
Nobody wants to hear what Jeff Flake has to say. I'm not talking about John Jeff Kelly Flake. is talking right now, talking about how crazy things are. Nobody cares. I don't know if nobody cares. This is the first I've actually seen John Kelly come out. And he today is defending uh, uh, Vindman. Yes. And, Lieutenant Colonel and, and, and says that it was right for Lieutenant Colonel Vindman to report He's Trump's a call with Zelensky. Hillary Lever. And I bring it up because this is the first I've yeah. actually really heard from John Kelly. Where are all the others, the adults in the room that were going to keep this president in check and balance? Because Why are you it, so quiet? It's not about right and wrong. It's not about left and right. It's about blind loyalty to Trump or you are an enemy. That is the line that's been drawn. And by the way, I'm proud to be on the enemy side. It is, it is a badge of honor to not join a cult. I assure you of that. Hey, we've got a check of the headlines on the way. And then will the next decade, the next decade be remembered as the decade we were all obese? And what can we do about it? Talk about it next on Arizona's News Station.